0: Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message.
1: Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 14, and... uh titled this one, The Open Door. I, I don't know if you've ever worked with a boss or somebody and they said that they had an open door policy. Um, I remember I had one guy, he had an open door policy, the problem is he was never there. Um, and then uh, I had an employee that I, I told him they, that we had an open door policy, or at least until we changed the locks. But uh, <laughs> when you think about an, an open door policy w- with God, do you think he has one with you? Yes. Uh, and based upon what? Does God have an open door policy with with everyone and based upon what? Uh, And and as we look at the passage today, what we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter nine is a description of the tabernacle, the Old Testament place where uh, the worship of God and his presence uh, took place. And so I don't know if you immediately can kind of envision the tabernacle or not, but I have a video that'll kind of maybe help you
2: picture what's going on there the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8-9, God spoke to Moses, saying, Make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell in the midst of them, according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its equipment, and so you will do. This portable temple was built in the wilderness by the Israelites, circa 1450 BC, after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. Moses was given specific instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 26. The tent itself sat within a curtained enclosure that was supported by pillars. This courtyard was about a quarter of the size of an American football field. Several slaughtering tables stood within the court of the tabernacle, along with the bronze laver and the bronze altar. The tabernacle itself was a rectangular-shaped structure. Its roof consisted of multiple layers of animal skins and linens, an outer covering of tachash skin, which may have been porpoise, beaver, or a type of leather, a covering of ram skin dyed red, a curtain of goat's hair, and finally, a curtain of fine linen. The interior of the tabernacle was divided into two sections that housed a number of sacred objects. The first section, the holy place, contained the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Beyond a veil lay the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was the first temple dedicated to God and the first resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. It served as a place of worship and sacrifices during the Israelites' 40 years in the desert, and their subsequent conquest of the land of Canaan. This transportable house of worship was eventually replaced by a more permanent structure, King Solomon's Temple. All right, so there will be a quiz a little bit later, and I expect you to know all the elements that are in there.
1: But let me read this with you. It says now in Hebrews chapter 9, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the Mo- excuse me, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a jar, a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the cherubim of glory were above the ark overshadowing the mercy seat it is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now and that's his way of saying it's not that he can't explain them he just doesn't want to write a commentary on them at the moment. Um, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of what's within here okay and so you have the different curtains that he talked about and uh, within it there's that outer veil and then you get into the holy place and you have the table of showbread there were twelve loaves of bread that were there that could only be eaten by the Levites and the twelve loaves represented the 12 tribes. And, and, and when you go through this, what you're going to see is that the elements that are in it, they're all very highly relational. This is kind of God's way of saying is he, he would like to have a meal with the 12 tribes, right? Uh, it's his way of saying he, he's willing to break bread with them. He's willing to, to be a friend to them. The lampstand and the menorah, on that there was a flowering at the end of each, uh, underneath each candle, there would have been sort of a flowering object and the idea there is that if you're in the presence of God, the fruit of of knowing him is going to show up in your life as well as the light of his life within your your life. The altar of incense, uh, that obviously has to do with an aroma that is pleasing to God. And then inside of the holy place, the, the holy of holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which as they said, was made of wood and inside of it, were those things, the the jar of manna, the the tablets of the covenant, and Aaron's rod. Uh, And then on top of that is a separate piece. Uh, the, The Ark of the Covenant would have been made of wood and then had gold laid around it. And the separate piece on top of it was solid gold, and that was the mercy seat where the two angels actually form a seat. And the idea is God sat upon this seat of mercy in order to be in the Israelites' presence. And so, All of these things are very, very relational. How how can we have relationship with God, especially when he is holy? And kind of what gets revealed within that is if you and I want to have relationship with God, his mercy is very, very important. I'm going to show you one more video that will maybe hopefully help you contextualize the, the spiritual elements that are going on here. So if you want to hit that one, go for it.
0: As the children of Israel left the life of slavery they had known for four centuries, God led them into the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. Here in the wilderness, the work of stripping away their identity as slaves began. A new culture was being fashioned, one that would reshape their identity and teach them in literal and symbolic ways that God was their only hope. And their only source for life the focal point for their physical camp as well as the center of their worship would be known as the tabernacle or tent of meeting Moses was summoned upon Mount Sinai where God would speak to him for 40 days and nights outlining the culture giving the fundamental Ten Commandments and explaining the ethics of this emerging culture he was creating in his chosen people. Upon Mount Sinai, God gave the blueprint for a portable dwelling place where his divine presence would be among the people as he led them forward toward the promised land, their permanent home. There would be an outer courtyard around the tent of meeting and inside the tabernacle, There would be an outer chamber, known as the Holy Place, and an inner chamber, known as the Most Holy Place, or Holy of Holies. Here in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant would dwell, and the very presence of God would descend and be among the people. The tabernacle would occupy the center of the multitude, a million or more strong, surrounded by the Levites, were set aside to care for it and lead the people in the worship of Yahweh. The tabernacle accompanied the children of Israel through all their wanderings in the wilderness as an ever-present reminder of who they were and who they were becoming. It crossed the Jordan River with them into the Promised Land and eventually found a more permanent home in Shiloh where the heart of the Israelite worship situated itself for the first three and a half centuries in their new homeland. The tabernacle was the religious heart of the people all the way through the time of the judges. As the time of the kings emerged, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle by King Saul, later to be regained but never again to be at Shiloh. Later, King David would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and his son Solomon would build the first permanent replacement for the tabernacle the Temple of God.
1: All right, so it kind of helps you visualize. You can see that they've actually made a replica of that, and and you can, uh, if you wanted to go over there, you could actually visit the replica. But uh, again, you just get the the picture of the spiritual importance of this. And so the regulations and elements of the earthly tabernacle were made after a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. Um, And so everything in here is highly relational. We see that there's a a couple of words that are used here. um, That in Exodus, he says, you will make... A sanctuary for me so that I can dwell among them. Here's these relational terms, dwell among them and make it according to what I show you, the pattern. You see this word pattern is used twice. And so the idea here is that God has a, a heavenly tabernacle um, and in, and an effort to reach to the people and have relationship with them, he gave Moses a pattern of what that is like and had them build it. Later they would have a temple like under, they mentioned under Solomon that was that was built and then the Babylonians destroyed that, that, uh, that temple in 586 B.C. and then it wasn't until Herod that another temple was built and then destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. But that was the center of Jew, Jewish worship and it was intended to be something that was a pattern of relationship with God, a pattern of being within His presence, a pattern of um, receiving mercy, so that so that we could be forgiven of sin and have relationship with God, and so that's what the author of Hebrews is drawing on as he brings us into this conversation. He's reminding us of this is always how God has interacted with his people. Um, He's found a way for there to be mercy so that their sin could be forgiven so that he could have relationship with them. And so he goes on, he says, and so we see here that the the details of the tabernacle in Old Testament worship, when you get into this, like if you were to go read Exodus 25 through 31, you might get a little bit bored um, because it's kind of repetitive and it's all about cubits and the size of things and the shape of things. And it's hard to picture that's why models and pictures are helpful, is because they help us see it. But there's some spiritual lessons that we shouldn't overlook. The first one is that God is holy and we're separated from him because of sin. That was very clear. Uh, the, outer, the outer court there uh, within the, the fence that sort of surrounded it, there were all the elements of, of sacrifice. And so you had the place where the animal would be the animal would be killed and then it would be offered to God. You had the 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 washing places and all these different things that were given to them to symbolize the cleansing that needed to happen from sin. Um, And so it's very clear that the barrier requires that sin be atoned for through sacrifice, and the scriptures actually make it clear that it's a a blood sacrifice that atones for sin. Um, Very often in the in the worship or the sacrificial system, they would lay a hand on the animal's head and recognize that their sin was being transferred to the animal and that the animal was dying on their behalf for their sins. And these were sins that they knew that they had committed, uh, that they went to confess, repent, and sacrifice so that they could be cleansed and and be able to go into God's presence and be a, a, a holy nation for God on the earth. But God initiated the building of the tabernacle, and this demonstrates his desire to relate with and be near his people. He he wants to have relationship with us, and he wants to be near to us, and so he initiates the relationship, right? We know that we love because God first loved us. And that's true within the Old Testament system as well. God is the one who's initiating the relationship with his people. And the last point there is that God would make a way for sin to no longer have the final word on whether or not we, we could be near to him. Um that's a big statement that that The final word on our relationship with God is not our sin. It's not our failures, it's not our shortcomings, it's not the things that we've done wrong to each other, it's not the way that we've dishonored God. Those things are not the final say on our relationship with Him. What is the final say on our relationship with Him is His mercy towards us. Mercy is is not giving someone what they deserve. And so within the Old Testament system, they would lay their hand on the animal, the sin was transferred to the animal, and the animal would... would take the death that we, are de- we were deserving because of sin. We recognize that within the new covenant, what Christ has done for us is we now, we now place our hand upon the cross and we recognize that our sin is paid for by Jesus Christ. His blood has cleansed us from all of our sin and we're righteous because of that. That's the good news that has come about because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But these are some spiritual things that remain true that we want to look after. And then he goes on. He says, With these things prepared like this, the elements of the tabernacle, the priests would enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. Over and over and over again, these sacrifices were offered. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, And never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. And so the sacrificial system is happening over and over and over again, and the people are recognizing what they have done wrong and repenting of it and confessing it for what it is and transferring their sin to a sacrifice on their behalf. But there was also once a year where the high priest would go in, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and he would offer first for himself and then for the sins of the nation that they had committed in ignorance. And this is a statement as human beings we recognize that there are things that we know that we've done wrong, and there are things that we go, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that took place. And God is making a way for all of that to be washed from our account, that we would not pay for those things, but he would take them himself. And so it says here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. So we look at this and we go, the, the the ministry of the earthly tabernacle, it demonstrated the deficiency of the people and the mercy of God. That's what it did. It, it recognized, through that, that system, there was a recognition that we cannot live up to God's standards and we are deficient as human beings to be what the divine is. And that's essentially what God calls us to. He calls us to his standards. He calls us to live up to the perfection of his own divinity. And so obviously we're going to fall short of that because of of our sin. And so we fall short of that. And instead of God holding us accountable to that measure in our own ability, the the sin is washed away. It's taken care of. And that's what the law does. It demonstrates to us that we cannot live up to God's standards. But it also demonstrates to us that the final say is not our sin, but God's mercy. He is willing, more than willing, to be merciful towards us, withhold the punishment that we're due, and put it on his own son so that we can be justified and made right. But the Old Testament system was a demonstration of what was to come, not the perfection that was. Does that make sense? The Old Testament was not perfect in and of itself. The Mosaic Covenant did not have what it took to make people right, which is what he goes on to say. This is a symbol for the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. So they're a symbol, uh, that which took place in the tabernacle, that which took place in King Solomon's temple, that which took place in Herod's temple, all of the elements of the Mosaic covenant, they were a symbol uh, at that present time that pointed forward to something better. And we know that the writer of the Hebrews, he writes this letter before 70 AD, before the Romans have destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And so these sacrifices are actually taking place at this at the time that he writes it. And we saw Last week, that he actually made a prophetic statement that those things were going to be done away with, and when the Romans destroy Jerusalem in seventy A.D., the elements of the Mosaic covenant have not been held since, and so they've been they've they've been done away with. They've passed away. The law could you could still try to uphold the law, but one of the points that the writer of Hebrews makes very clear is that without the sacrificial system, the law doesn't work, and and the reason that the the sacrificial system was done away with was because that when Christ. died, on the cross, the once for all sacrifice took place. And so there's no longer a need for repeated sacrifices because Christ has done it once and for all, all of our sin and even the sins of the people in the old Testament. Paul tells us in Romans that it was through God's forbearance that he forgave the people in the old Testament, looking forward to the cross. The sacrifices of the old Testament look forward to the old cross or to the, to the cross. We recognize in the book of Ezekiel, it tells us that when the millennial kingdom returns, that the sacrificial system will be reinstituted. A lot of people have a hard time with that. Why? Jesus died once for all. Well, they're going to be memorials of the cross. The the sacrifices under um, the Mosaic system were something that pointed forward to the cross. The sacrificial system reinstituted in the millennium will be memorials of Jesus' death. And so none of them were salvific. None of those things saved people, but pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ on the cross. He goes on here and he says, these things, these sacrifices sacrifices, and gifts, they cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Uh, Those are two pretty important words. The word conscience there has to do with sort of your innate sense of what's right and wrong. Each of us has this. You have sort of deep within you an innate sense of this is right and this is wrong. The question is where do you get it? What the scriptures teach is that when we sinned and fell short of the glory of God, all of humanity within the Garden of Eden, we then all come into this earth with a broken nature and part of that problem, part of the problem of a broken nature is that our conscience is no good. It cannot actually determine what is right and what is wrong according to God's standards and the, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament had no way to fix it. And that's the author's point here, is that the sacrifices had no way for God to get deep into who we are and change the way that we perceive what is right and wrong. All of these physical uh, regulations were external. They couldn't change the worshiper's conscience. And so the, the ministry of the earthly tabernacle, it provided guidance and forgiveness for external behaviors. It lacked the power for internal transformation. And the danger for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ is we could try to put a rules-based system upon ourselves in order to transform who we are from the outside in. And this is what religion does. Most religions tell us what's right. They tell us what's wrong based upon some sort of standard. And even if your standards are right, you won't be able to be transformed by trying to live up to the standards of the law. The law isn't made for that. The law has the ability to demonstrate that you're sinful the law has the ability to demonstrate that you're deficient when it comes to living up to God's divine standards, it does not have the ability to transform you or, as he says here, to change your conscience and allow you to perceive what is right and what is wrong according to God's standards. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have confessed that Jesus is your Lord and that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and three days later, by the power of God, he rose from the dead, then you know what it is to have your conscience transformed. You do. Because Because in your old life there were things that you loved that you suddenly begin to hate. And this is part of the transformation of your conscience, that the things that you used to do, that you used to fall into, that you used to try to find life in, you recognize them for the death that they are, the sin that they are, and your conscience begins to tell you that's not what it is, there's something else. And this is God working in your life, giving you a new and cleansed conscience. And he's the only one who is capable of it. Rather than than someone impressing upon you all these laws and rules and telling you 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 need to fix this behavior in your own strength, what the gospel does is God gets in your head, he gets in your heart, and he changes what you want, and he changes the way that you view what's right and what's wrong. And this is something that should be true of every Christian, and it's also something that every Christian should never shut out of your life. Always allow God to continue to demonstrate to you areas where you don't have it right. This is the humility that we approach God with, to, to say, I, I, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, but I want your ways and your thoughts to become mine. And that's what God does as he transforms us from the inside out. So, how does it happen? But Christ appeared as high priest of, a, of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So we've talked about this in the book of Hebrews. Christ is greater than the Old Testament system. He is the high priest that has come, and he has brought the good things that they awaited in the promises of the new covenant that you find, as we saw last week in Jeremiah 31. And Ezekiel 36, you need a snack? I need one too. <laughs> She's way too adorable to be upset. You're totally fine. God does that for us, right? He says, take a nap, have a snack. It's going to be okay. So Christ appeared as the high priest he as as the things that we awaited as we saw last week Jeremiah 31 Ezekiel chapter 36 these are promises that God made Christ has come to bring those promises to reality as he shared the 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 last supper as we call it as he shared uh the Passover meal with his disciples. He gave them the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. And so that's what's going on here is that he gave his own blood his own blood and through his own blood not not of goats and not of calves no longer these animal sacrifices that pointed forward to the real thing but what he did for us is he obtained eternal redemption and that is a remarkable phrase that Jesus Christ gave his blood to obtain for us to purchase for us what we could not buy on our own and what he bought for us with his own blood was eternal redemption not sacrifices repeatedly over and over and over again but but once for all eternally For all time, if you're in Jesus Christ, you didn't do anything to be redeemed. You don't do anything to stay redeemed. His blood is completely sufficient for this. And he has saved you once and for all. But the redemption that he's done for us, that phrase redemption, at the time that this letter was written within the the Roman world, that was a payment that was made to buy someone out of slavery. So the idea that's given is that you and I were once slaves to sin. And we had a master, his name is Satan, the evil one who lies to us and we were chained to him and to death and Jesus Christ broke those chains for us, bought us out of the slavery to sin and has given us new life so that we are now free and and able to live a life that pleases him. That's the eternal redemption process. His blood purchases you and me from sin and death into eternal life. You have it now. Eternal life is yours now. You know what Jesus says eternal life is in John 17:3. He says that they would know the Father and that they would know the Son whom he sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the Father? Is the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Eternal life is yours today. That's why Jesus can say things like even if you die, you won't really die, but live forever. Because life is yours here and now. This body will pass, but my spirit and my soul, the immaterial part of who I am, has an eternal redemption that Jesus Christ has purchased for me. I will live forever, even though this flesh will die. We'll get into it more in a second. But the death of this flesh is actually a benefit. Uh, But we see this eternal redemption. And so Jesus has reached beyond the patterns and shadows of this world into the reality of the unseen realm of God's glory. Uh, We read a few weeks ago... But when Jesus entered into the holy place, he has actually become our anchor there. In a spiritual sense, right now, you and I, as Paul would say, are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, and the writers of Hebrew says that we are anchored there. Jesus has become our anchor in the true reality of God's tabernacle, his heavenly one, that we are there with him. That is unbelievable truth that God has for us, and that's what the eternal redemption is about, is that you and I, as Father of Jesus Christ, assuming you are one, uh, that he has done this for us. He has entered into the unseen realm of God's glory and anchored us there. The actions of the greater high priest resulted in everlasting deliverance and liberation for all who placed saving faith in him. This is an obvious moment to ask you where your spirit and soul resides. Does it reside on this earth alone? Have you have you been liberated from sin? Have you been delivered from death through the blood of Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection? Do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? And this is, this is the truth that the scripture reveals to us is that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he has defeated sin, but he's also risen and defeated death. And because he has risen and seated at the right hand of the Father, so am I. Not because of what I've done, but because he's taken me there. And so that's my spiritual position in Jesus Christ. I am with him. My spiritual condition is I live here on this earth and I'm still, I'm still dwelling in this human flesh. Uh, And we know from uh, various portions of the scriptures that our flesh has sin that dwells within it. And so we still have this pull towards sin. But this is what Christ has done for us. He's appeared as the greatest high priest, and He has entered into not an earthly tabernacle that's a shadow or a pattern, but He's entered into the true one and obtained eternal redemption through our blood. That is what He purchased for you and I. That is the gospel. Not only that, for he says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes, the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who were defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through who etern- the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Okay, a couple things. Old Testament stuff might not make sense to you. We have goats. Typically, what you see in the... The book of Leviticus is when a goat is mentioned, it's sacrificed for um, someone who is not a priest, someone not of the tribe of Levi. When bulls are sacrificed, they're typically sacrificed for the priesthood. The ashes of a young cow, this is something that's taking place where it's a symbol of the entire group of people being cleansed from sin, okay? And what he's saying here is that those sacrifices had the ability to sanctify purification of the flesh. In other words, people could become, they were ceremonially unclean because of sin, because they had been around death, because uh, they had done something sexually immoral. There were a bunch of different things that could cause this to happen. And they would go through the process of this ceremony that would cleanse them from their sin. He says, if that was able to purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of of Jesus the blood of Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. This is an important phrase because the sacrificial system the animal that was offered had to be without blemish and it was pointing forward to a sinless one who would take on the sins of the whole world. And that's a very important thing within Christology. If you, if you want to understand who Jesus is it's very important that you get it. He was sinless. He did not sin at any point. If he did his death on the cross doesn't have what it takes to save us um because I could die on a cross and be full of sin, and I can't save you either. It took the blood of the one who was perfect to save us from our sin. He was without blemish. Here's another interesting phrase. It says that in Christ's ministry, he offered himself without blemish through the eternal spirit. There's the idea here that Jesus is offering us an example to follow. That while he was both human and divine, the eternal uh, third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Uh, that while he lived in human flesh, he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit and dependent upon the Father's will. So he's actually offering us something to follow, that you and I, if you would like to live a sinless day, listen to the Holy Spirit and desire the Father's will. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and guide you and desire the Father's will. That's what Christ did 24-7 for 30 years. And then because of that, he's able to cleanse our consciences from dead works. So what the law couldn't do, it couldn't give us a new conscience. Jesus' inside-out work through his death, burial, and resurrection does. So what the law says is, here's a list of rules, follow them. Um, I, I remember running into a guy, and I don't even know why. He must have just wanted to have a spiritual conversation. But I was at Home Depot, and all of a sudden, he's talking to me about plumbing or whatever it is we were doing. And then he goes, "He goes, hey, you know, I've been thinking about it. And, uh, and it was totally random. He goes, I'm, I keep the Ten Commandments. And I was like, okay, I'm plumbing. Um, <laughs> But he was like, I really feel like I'm right with God because because I keep keep the 10 Commandments. And it was like, well, which ones and how well? Um, Because anyone who's truly honest with themselves is gonna look at the 10 Commandments and not go, nailed it every day. (laughs) You're gonna look at them and go, boy, there's lots of ways that I dishonor God. There's lots of idols in my life over the years. There's lots of times when I've wanted what somebody else had and was willing to, to do something shady to get it. Um, the, you know, you look at it, and you, you, if, if you look at the Ten Commandments and think, huh, feeling good, um, that's not what they're for. They're there to show you your need. Uh, And and so the law, what it couldn't do is it couldn't make us deep down within our conscience, the innate part of who we are that determines right and wrong. It couldn't fix it. But Jesus, he not only dies on the cross and defeats sin, but he raises three days later and in his resurrection offers you and I new life. Uh, We saw last week that one of the promises of the old covenant is that God would give us a new heart. That deep down inside of who we are, our desires would be changed to want what God wants. The other thing that this passage reveals is he's also going to work his way into our minds and the way that we perceive right and wrong, and he's going to make that new and different too. So not only am I going to want what God wants, but I'm going to determine what's right and what's wrong according to what he says is true. My mind is going to be transformed by his word, and I'm going to learn to to see right and wrong according to his standards, not my standards, not my culture standards, not what's popular. I'm going to determine it based upon what he says, and that's going to become an innate part of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. And like I said earlier, if you followed him for a while, you know this is true you know that his spirit testifies to our spirit and that he is causing our consciences to determine right and wrong, not based upon our standards, but based upon his. And he says the reason we can do that, the reason he does that is so that he didn't save us and give us a new conscience so we could do whatever we want. He saved us so that we would serve the living God. And so what we see the old covenant rituals, they serve to make those who were ceremonially unclean outwardly clean again. However, the law cannot change the heart or the conscience. I, I don't care how good your rules are. They will not change your heart. They cannot give you a new conscience. It won't happen. Only God working from the inside out can do that. The, the work of Christ is not a ceremony uh, pointing to a greater reality, but a historical miraculous act of divine power, mercy, justice, and love. The stuff in the Old Testament, they were ceremonies pointing to a greater reality. When Christ came and he died sinless on our behalf, that was a historical took time, took place in time, space, and matter, miraculous event that demonstrated to us God's divine power by raising him from the dead, but it also demonstrated God's mercy by casting our sin upon his son. He became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God, and it also demonstrated God's justice because he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. It must be paid for, and Christ paid that price with his own blood, and then it demonstrates God's love because now he's not initiating relationship with us through a tent or a tabernacle or a or a temple he's initiating relationship with us through his own life in the person of Jesus Christ and so it's this tremendous expression of God's love to us so the true and greater work of the cross and the empty grave is that rather than impressing external rules on us God purifies our understanding of right and wrong from within so that we would serve him That's the point behind our salvation, is a transformed life that serves God, not out of a sense of obligation, but recognizing that it's a privilege, not out of a sense of, oh, I got to do this. But remember what you used to have to do? You used to have to sin because you were in bondage to it and it had control of your life. There were behaviors in your life that you simply could not break away from because they owned you. And what God has done is he's freed you from that. And now he says, out of a sense of gratitude and joy, serve me, honor me. And that's what Christ draws us into. And so I can say this as a Christian. If you're a Christian, this is something you should be able to say about yourself. In Christ, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm made new, I'm brought near, and I am a temple of the living God. That's 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of the living God and that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you? That's another very amazing statement. The the, the tabernacle used to be God's hotspot within the Holy of Holies, and one guy got to go in there once a year. Now, he says, look at you. You have become his temple. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and you are now one of his most holy places that he's transformed forming from the inside out. I am that. I have God's understanding of right and wrong divinely implanted in my conscience. That's what's happened to you if you're a follower of Jesus. He has divinely implanted his understanding, not understanding, his right and wrong in our minds. We have understanding of right and wrong. He is right and wrong justice flows from him. As such, I live with true, the true liberty of knowing God and serving him with gratitude and joy. This is what Christ has done for us. This is what the author of the book of Hebrews is revealing to us. He's telling those first century Jewish people, I recognize that it's not popular to practice Christianity in the Roman world they would they'd be perfectly happy with you practicing Judaism or or pantheism or uh, you know polytheism or whatever theism you want to pick as long as you don't trust Jesus they were fine with that that sounds like somewhere you live you can pick any god you want just not that exclusive one that claims to have all truth and be the only source of life even though he proved it with his death, burial, and resurrection in time, space, and matter, and had hundreds of eyewitnesses that account to it. You can pick any God but him. And that was what was going on in the Roman world. You could pick any God but Jesus. And that would be socially acceptable. He says, but don't go back to those old ways because they don't have life in them. Don't turn yourself over to the old ways because there's no life in them. The law can't save you. The law can't give you a a cleansed conscience. The law can't give you a new heart. The law can't make you righteous. The law can't justify you. I don't know what your story is, but mine was try, try the rules, try them really hard, fail at them pretty good, and give up that's what I did. Here's all the rules, live up to them, try real hard, I can't do it, I give up. And in my time of giving up, I was like, well, if if the rules are, are not bringing me life, let's try a lack of rules. That really sucked. And it was when I came back to Christ that I realized that, that it was no longer legalism, follow the rules, and it was no longer license, do whatever you want. But there was this other place where God wanted to give me liberty, freedom from sin, freedom from law, and an ability to live out of a sense of gratitude and joy, open-handed, wanting to serve Him, and, and be transformed from the inside out. It was just all the burden was taken away. That's why Christ can say, let me t- take up, let me take up the yoke with you, because my burden is light. I'm gonna. I'm going to allow you to move forward and be transformed in a way that doesn't crush you. And so it's with gratitude and joy that we serve God. The door, let's see, Jesus Christ, another statement. Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, has accomplished for me through his willing sacrifice and the defeat of sin and death. And that's what he's done for me. He's defeated sin and death. Furthermore, he has made me new, mind, spirit. One of the other things that, that we have revealed to us within the scriptures is that before we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're actually spiritually dead and we cannot perceive the things of God. But when we come to faith, he, he quickens, he makes our spirit alive, and all of a sudden, the scriptures come to life, Um, Sin is obvious for what it is. Right and wrong is obvious for what it is. And all of a sudden we we can spiritually perceive. He gives us a new heart. He changes our soul. That being the way that we process emotions and the choices that we make based upon the emotions that we're experiencing. And so he does all that for us. And he does it so that we can enjoy relationship with him and live in freedom from sin and have a freedom to right living. That's what God's doing for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The other thing that I think has to be said here is nobody gets this perfect. Um, I'm not even sure if I could tell you a day where 24-7 I got it right. I was listening to the Spirit. I was desiring God's will. I was making choices based upon the way (laughs) the Spirit was leading. I'm not sure if I could tell you I've had a perfect 24 hours. But the amazing thing is, is God's not, Beating me up about it. He's merciful. He's kind. Uh, he's, he's willing to work with us. He's not heavy handed. He's this awesome father uh, that, that is so involved in our lives where he sees all of the errors. He knows them. We know them. And we know he knows them. And instead of beating us up, he coaches us towards making the decision right the next time based upon how the spirit empowers us in line with his will. It's an amazing relationship. It's so more relaxed than I think most people want to make it. And that doesn't mean lazy. It just means I'm at ease with where God is and where I'm at with him. And because of that sense of ease, I, I, I have liberty. I have liberty to, 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 to serve him in ways that I probably wouldn't choose ever. I'm sure I wouldn't choose on my own. And so many of you are wondering, how do I defeat this pattern of sin in my life? I keep going back to the same thing over and over again. I keep falling prey to the same pattern of sin in my life over and over again. How do I win? Well, let me give you ten rules and you write them down. No, it's about, God, I, I want to have relationship with you. I want to enjoy relationship with you. And I want your spirit to, to be talking to me, to be guiding my conscience, to teach me to hate the things that, that bring death through sin and to teach me to love the things that bring life. God, just guide me in this little by little, day by day. And, and it might be two steps forward and one step back, but he's with you. And in the end, what you want is what he wants, even though you're imperfect at seeking him. He's still there. He's not giving up. Let me pray with you. Our Father, Lord Jesus, uh, we, we thank you that, Jesus, you've opened the door. It's actually one of the things that you tell us in the, in the seven I am statements in the book of John. You say, I am the gate. And so we recognize that through you, Jesus Christ, we can enter into God's presence that you have made the way, you have paved the path, you have covered the debt. You've made it so that we can freely, with a sense of gratitude, know that you are with us. Know that you've redeemed us, that the redemption that you have for us, buying us away from sin and into eternal life is is forever. Nothing can take it away from us because we didn't earn it in the first place you did. Father, I pray for the Christian here this morning that's struggling with the same sin over and over and over again and not finding victory, that they'd recognize that there's no amount of rules that will fix this problem. They already know what's right and what's wrong. You've given them a clean conscience. The struggle that they're having is not knowing what's right and what's wrong. It's, it's where they believe life is. Do they believe life is in the, the numbness and momentary pleasure of sin or do they believe life is in serving you with gratitude and joy? Is, is righteousness a better flavor than sin? So, God, transform their desires. And through your Spirit, give them power to overcome what they once were and be who you've made them. Father, I pray for the person who hasn't decided to follow your Son Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior this morning, that your Spirit has been working on them and that they're hearing their need, that they're seeing your love. God, you didn't just die on the cross for me or for the world. You died for each and every individual, knowing their name, knowing their story, and pursuing them all along. I pray for that person here this morning that they trust in you as their Lord and Savior and make a decision to follow you. Thank you that as we follow you, you, you don't demand our perfection, but instead, uh, you just you you strive for us to walk with you, even if we stumble, just walk with you. And from that sense of freedom and liberty, God, would you uh, guide us to want to serve you day by day. I pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen.